Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking to the Strength and Conditioning Manager of the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai, Gav Pratt. Gav, I've spoken to her online for a couple of years now and I've been loving seeing the work that he's doing at the Shanghai UFC Performance Institute where they're not only training people uh, like the Chinese MMA athletes that are on the roster of the UFC, but also created an academy where they're doing talent ID, doing combines, doing a, a good selection process. And these are uh, the things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. We're talking about Gav's career so far and his future aspirations and talking about some of the, the key training methods that he uses at the UFC Performance Institute. Uh, before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to our partners and sponsors, sponsors of this podcast, Saga Fitness. Saga Fitness are specialists in blood flow restriction training and their smart wearable technology BFR cuffs are fantastic to use for strength and hypertrophy gains. If you wanted to find out more about the benefits of BFR training, please visit the link in description where we've got a full article and video workshop on BFR training. And if you are wanting to get your hands on the BFR cuffs, which are uh, very easy to use and very effective, uh, check out the link in the description and you can also use the Boxing Science discount code get 10% off uh, using Boxing Science and you can get the BFR cuffs for the upper body, lower body or you can get their bundle pack so make sure you go and check this out let's uh, get on with the podcast with UFC Performance Institute's Gav Pratt Okay, so I'm here with uh, Gav Pratt How are you doing Gav? I'm very well, mate. Thanks for having me on the uh, on the show, Danny. Yeah, much appreciated. I appreciate you uh, taking out the time to uh, have a chat with us and uh, talk about your roles at the UFC Performance Institute. So can you explain a little bit more about uh, what your current role is? Sure. So um, for the last few years, I've been the manager of strength and conditioning at the Shanghai UFC Performance Institute. And, and now I'll be traveling to Las Vegas to take the director role as well. And so basically... The, the role that I had been doing in, in China was looking after not only an academy program that we have where we've got around 30 athletes who are really close to the UFC or maybe they're in the developmental stage and we're trying to progress them so that they can eventually hopefully get into the UFC. But we also work alongside uh, UFC, current rostered UFC athletes. Yeah. And then we also have a deal with the Chinese Olympic Committee where we'll get training camps of different sporting teams come in and do between a week and uh, two months with us of predominantly S&C training because of our facility. But that's been a really cool exposure as well. So what? how did you get into this role and what, what were your background? How did you get into strength conditioning and, and what was your journey towards working in the Performance Institute? It's It's been a long one, mate, but it's mm. been a bit uh, varied as well. So I've probably been doing strength and conditioning per se for around 20 years um, I, I guess going back to the start, I always wanted to be an athlete, which is everyone's start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we realized maybe yeah. we're not good enough. Um, so I wanted to play Australian rules football, uh, couldn't, but then had a really good coach who knew that I was interested in fitness. I went and did a, a, a short course on it. And then he invited me to come back and be the strength coach for the under 18s team. From there, I developed up into the league team. 
And then throughout that whole time, I was also working in a general populations gym as a gym manager and running my own business out of that. After a while, I got a little bit stale, I guess. And so I went back to university and did uh, a bachelor in um, radio and television. How old was he at this point? Uh, mid-20s, maybe 25, something yeah. like that. Slightly different path and it certainly wasn't in based in exercise science, um, even though that was my career. I just mm. felt like I needed to change. So ended up working in television alongside uh, strength and conditioning for the next 10 years. And cool. part of that journey was to go back and do a master's in exercise science through the bachelor that I'd done. I was able to work it out. And so I did a master's in strength and conditioning and that sort of helped me get those extra qualifications. Uh, we moved, my wife and I, now wife and I moved to the Gold Coast. She studied dietetics at Griffith University. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was just trying to surf a lot and work a bit and ended up uh, basically getting an email before a Christmas one day through a friend of mine who had been offered the job at Exos to go to China. Yeah. So I hadn't even gone to this job and they said, he recommended me and would you like to go to China? So we were like, hell yeah, let's do it. So that was 2016, 2015, we went to China and I worked with the Shanghai Olympic-based team. So the, the team where they did a lot of Olympic sports for the national games, did that for about 18 months, two years, then picked up a job with China Surfing, trying to develop their team for the Olympics. And at the same time as that happened, the UFC started building their Performance Institute. And so I went for that, was fortunate enough to get the job, and uh, here we are. Fantastic. That is a much more interesting journey than most strength conditioning coaches are. <laughs> yeah. Go to uni, do an intern, get the degree, do an internship, and find the way somehow. It's, uh, it's good. And it, you, an old friend of mine and one of my uh, mentors, he did media at university and then went and went back to university and did a master's. Uh, so he, he, very, very, sim- very similar journey. I think that like I've got, a, I haven't got a degree in media, but I've got um, A levels, which is like college standard just after school. And I think that it does help you in different ways. Um, I, I, how do you think that's helped you in your coaching, like being in a television background and then obviously going out in front of people and having the confidence to, to communicate? I think it's been massive and I think it's allowed me to understand some really valuable tools as to how to communicate, not only with athletes, but with fellow coaches, say it's like at a conference yeah. uh, or, or doing a presentation online, things that, you know, can make it interesting for the viewer or the listener to get engaged with. That's something that obviously is essential with TV and radio. You need to engage the listener so those sorts of skill sets and, and I guess unique teachings that they were able to give us were, have been huge for me and it's been a blessing and a curse because you realise that maybe this, this is something that our entire industry should be trying to work on a little bit more to get our messages across even more effectively. Yeah, definitely. Getting the message across is, is really important. I'll just mention this on a, on a previous podcast on getting buy-in for boxing and strength conditioning because over the past 10 years, it's got a lot better. But before then, like kind of old school boxing coaches didn't want to get involved with strength conditioning. They were like, oh, 
Sugar Ray Robinson didn't do it. Muhammad Ali didn't do it. So why should we have to do it now and everything like that? And the the way that I tried to communicate the benefits of strength and conditioning came across in a negative way. And I was like, almost like I was attacking what they'd done, done previously. And that communication is so important to master. And like saying from a, going from TV and broadcasting, obviously it's, not everyone's going to go into that and then go over into strength conditioning, but it's it's highlighting the the importance of communication to be able to get across that point, to be able to get get that buying from from athlete's perspective and a coach's perspective as well. Absolutely, and it, and it looks at how you can hopefully decrease the ego in that message as well because obviously yeah. in TV if you come across really egotistical people are going to mm. switch it off but it's the same way when you approach your coach if you're egotistical about strength and conditioning they're going to be turned off you immediately so you're not going to get that message across no matter how well you say it or if all the science behind it is correct they'll yeah. switch off the sense you come across the wrong way so that that type of messaging and communication is essential yeah, you can kind of intimidate them with your with your knowledge, and if you use this really super scientific terms and everything like that, people can end up switching off. And I think that that's something that we try and do at Boxing Science is try and break it down in a very simple way, um, especially when it comes to energy systems and stuff like that. It, it, it even complicates myself and the fellow coaches in here like about energy systems and everything. Absolute minefield. So went through that journey then, uh, got to UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai and obviously this is a boxing science podcast and uh, we're wanting to talk about combat sports. We might have time to talk about uh, Chinese surfing, uh, but we want to talk about your your role at uh, the UFC Performance Institute. So you got the you got the role, it's, 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 it's what what did that entail when you when you first walked through the doors? Well, I think the, the biggest thing to highlight, I guess, is for anyone that's a S&C coach that's interested in this is imagine going into a world-class facility, a dreamboat facility, and you don't know who, what athletes you're getting. They haven't come yet. Mm. Um, it's a sport that, that is only 28 years of age and probably the first 17 or 18 of that didn't have um, – the highest end of strength and conditioning, say, like there would yeah. have been some fantastic practitioners out there, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden you're coming in with a blank slate with a beautiful gym and you're going, how am I going to balance this? Like you want to use all the stuff. You want it to be good. You want it to be effective, but also influence the people that are coming in to go, wow, this is crazy. What are we, this is really cool. But you also want to stick to your key training principles as a strength and conditioning coach. So, uh, and add to that, I, I couldn't speak Mandarin very well and still can't. Mm. So, all these factors weighed up in, in my head as to how I'm going to do it. I think over time, over three years, I'm, I'm now that I'm leaving to Vegas, I'm in a really happy place as to where I've left it. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll continue to help drive that forward. But from where we started with a blank slate, that was. It's quite intimidating in a lot of ways. Like it's on you, right? This is yeah. your role. So yeah, you can't look at like kind of what what are the strengths of this program, where are the areas for improvement. You're literally starting from starting from scratch. It's hard to do. And no one's done it before. No one's created an academy program 
in China, let alone you know uh, the world in terms of starting from scratch, getting it off in MMA specific. We're integrating technical training and uh, non-technical training all day, every day. We're setting up timetables, which was a great thing that our head coach, Dean Amazinger, had done. He set up his training program. He goes, these are the sections for S&C, unless you want to talk about it. So we discuss, yeah, maybe we need this, these sessions throughout the week. Maybe we start with four, break down to three, and then two in fight camp. Mm-hmm. Let's have a think about this thing. But everything just evolved over time because we all got along so well. And it was a really high level of team integration there. And without that, there'd be no way that the S&C would look like it did because it was mm-hmm. such great from every other department and we work together. So I think that was such a really key key part of it. We might have put our plans down initially for S&C, but we relied on the other input of the different departments. So what are the key goals of the Performance Institute in Shanghai? I'd see that it is quite different to the Performance Institute in, in Vegas, even though you've got the same principles of, of training. Um, it seemed like UFC Performance Institute was uh, sorry, in, in Vegas was set up to support the current roster. And I think that the one in Shanghai is, is to build something new and build that academy. Is it, what, what were the goals going into it? Yeah, that's definitely a big, big difference. I mean, we had these athletes living just around the corner and they were on our time schedule. So, you know, it was a great opportunity for us to not only influence their training on the daily, but also get some really cool data from it, which is part of our role there as well. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. So I think some of our key goals obviously is to get a certain number of these athletes into the UFC. So we need to get them up to a technical level where they've got the ability to compete and compete well. Mm-hmm. But from S&C perspective, we need to make sure that all those skill sets have a good physiological underpinning from what we give them so they're able to continue to repeat those technical skills over the course of a, of a fight. So together, we're all trying to work out the best ways potentially that we can help them achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, whether the COVID's obviously affected that a lot um, in terms of people can't come in. They, they've got a lot of local fight competitions in China and they would always get um, athletes to come in and fight, whether it's from Russia, or Australia, New Zealand, would come in. But obviously that's now limited, so it's all within China. Yeah. So they hadn't got that exposure to international competition like they used to, um, but we've still been really fortunate and successful in getting a number of athletes to make their debut on the UFC, and um, a lot of them have gone really, really well. So it's exciting. It's yeah. it's only sort of a start to take off in a big way in China, but obviously with Zhang Weili having won the world title, um, that was a great promotion for, for MMA in China as well. Yeah, you kind of need that star to come through, as as the UFC have seen in with Ronda Rousey, with, with the female side, and obviously Conor McGregor taking taking it up a notch in terms of like uh, worldwide exposure and everything. And I suppose with 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 um, Chinese MMA, you want in somebody to kind of be the the focus point. Do the athletes are, are they mixed martial artists, or do they come in from different kinds of Martial arts. Yes, so they're, they're all martial artists. Okay. Uh, um, basically, their background might differ. So a lot of the yeah. time it will depend on which um, province they've come from. Sometimes they might be wrestling 
dominant. Sometimes yeah. they might be striking dominant, but ultimately they've been professional fighters in China for you know at least twelve months okay. to enough years. And how how old are they? Like about twenty? Is it a youth academy, or is it is it just? Uh... I, I would say our range would be between eighteen and twenty eight. All right, cool, cool, good stuff. And and they come in. And how do they get selected into the thing? Did I've I've seen a lot about this combine and something that I want to kind of uh, talk to you about because I'm I'm really interested in this. Do they come through on on that combine and then selected from there? Yeah, beautiful segue, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> combine will run twice a year, and they'll be invited. So they obviously have to perform well on the local circuit to get an invitation, and then. The, the combine is basically split up into two components, which is your technical training and your non-technical testing. Mm-hmm. And so from that, they're going to compile a, a, a score across the battery of tests on both technical and non-technical side. And then we'll have a leaderboard. And generally speaking, the, the, the top 20 are looking pretty good at getting a spot in the academy. What, what really it comes down to is – if there's maybe five athletes that uh, touch and go, like, oh, we don't know who to select here, then we might go to the technical, the non-technical testing, mm. sort of look through it, like who has the potential to develop the most there or who, who's already ready to go. Same thing mm. with the technical skill sets. Did they perform well in the areas that the coach is one of them to perform well in? And that might be the differentiating factor as to whether they get into the academy or not. From there, they're then offered a contract and it's put into tiers, a tier system, A, B, and C. And mm-hmm. so the A tier is would be considered like you guys are pretty, pretty close to getting in the UFC. You're, you're a fairly exceptional fighter. And we probably just need to do a few little things and you're ready to rock and roll. And hopefully we can match you up in the UFC and get you a contract. Uh, B's are a little bit further off, but still super, super talented fighters. And then the C's we might look at as a really developmental process so maybe they're going to be in the academy two or three years before we even think that they might have a chance depending on how they develop Mm. so that's also then they're paid they're also paid bonuses and then we try and help match up their fights so that it's uh it helps their career and this has been another thing with china being locked down is that you know we've got a lot of the best fighters in china as part of our academy and then it comes to competition time and they're in the same weight class someone's got to take an L mm. and then the UFC probably won't look at those fighters until they're on at least a three-fight win streak. With this combine, you're saying about uh, it creates a score. Is that a, do you have a total score where it's technical and, and physical or do you look at like a total physical score? And how do you, how is that score created? Obviously like the performance across the test, but is it using Z scores and the cumulative of, the, of them Z scores? Yes, yeah, so that's worked out by um, both Roman and Felix Falkenberg, our sports scientists, and, and basically it's an, based on an algorithm where it's weighted towards particular tested, tests. So say, obviously, the grappling tests would weigh heavier than an alactic bike test. Okay. If you get your points in that, you've, you've done really well in the grappling, you're mm-hmm. going to get a higher score than you would if you did really well in your alactic bike test or something along those lines. So yeah. it's all weighted out to, to influence more on the things that we would prefer there to be a focus on. 
Um, mm. And then, yeah, they'll get a total score from that. So not only is there a total score, but there's also like a, a, a top ratings for every test as well that's mm-hmm. also highlighted. And so people can see where the strengths and weaknesses are. And that also gives us an opportunity, like I was saying before, when we first started, we started with a combine. So the combine went Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, the, the academy was announced on a Sunday and then we started training on the Monday. So we had effectively an afternoon to work out who, who these athletes were. Yeah. Potentially where their strong points were and what we might need to work on and moving forward. But obviously we'd give them quite a generic first three weeks of like mm. a return to training program. You know, we had a little bit of time before we could sort of go, right, this is how we're going to bucket you guys or put you into your appropriate S&C groups and your technical training groups as well. Talk about it a little bit later in the podcast, but we're doing uh, something called the Youth Athlete Initiative, um, which is basically boxing science going back to amateur boxing uh, because there isn't like a strength and conditioning system for youth athletes. Um, so we're going around like kind of regional uh, programs uh, performing testing and they get a boxing science score. And this is based off like like basically poor, average, good or, or poor, good, excellent or whatever. Um, and they get one, two or three points or and and then they get a think score. So it's it's quite interesting how you're saying about like weighted. Obviously, we our most important tests are possibly core strength and uh, counter movement jump as as the as the key ones. Uh, RSI is important, but not as important as as counter movement jumps for us. Uh, it doesn't influence this program as much. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting that you're saying that there is a weighted element to that so it's definitely something that we we need to look at um talk to me about like the combine then um in terms of the physical test what what did they include Mm -hmm. so i'll start with the non-technical so the Mm non-technical stuff that we work on on the on the floor we'll we'll tend to look at things like upper body power so we use the landmine punch throw uh we, yep. we used to do three weights to get so like a force velocity profile but just because of time we ended up doing um the Ex- one load exactly the same that's that's the reason why we dropped <laughs> we do we do because uh, it's quite accurate um doing load velocity profile uh, we get some uh quite high uh, r squared values from it so we've just decided to just go with the two so we go with 20 kilo uh, Olympic barbell and and the 10 kilo so that's the one bang in the middle but we used to do uh, five incremental loads up to 40 kilos <laughs> which uh, as you can imagine t- took a long time especially when you're doing both sides as well uh, I mean we we've always done the three loads but mm. we ended up just doing lightest and heaviest to try and get that you know estimated um, yeah. linear sort of look at it um, mm-hmm. and then now we've just based it on their weight classes so depending on um, you know usually it's like flyweight through the lightweight I think mm-hmm. is is uh, um, 20 kilos and then from lightweight to light heavyweight or middleweight it might be 25 kilos based on the and that's because we both have male and females as well so we sort of make sure that it's all relative mm-hmm. um, and that's the bigger thing about a lot of the tests we do but so we've got that for your upper body power uh, we'll do a inverted row for upper body strength endurance just reps um, we tend to go 
uh, a supinated grip because we found that a lot of because fighters are so kyphotic a lot of the time whenever they go for the um, pronated grip on the inverted row they can't actually just touch and it's not through lack of strength it's just because they don't have the movement capacity to do it yeah so as soon as they change it to supinated they're able to touch the chest get a full rep out and that made it a bit more of an effective test uh we would say that anywhere from 25 plus on that one would be a good score to do that to to do that on a barbell um how how what kind of degree angle do you think so we we usually have a box there so we want the the body to be at a 180 degree angle okay feet up on the box um malleolus sort of of the ankle on the edge of the box okay and then we get them to hang straight with their arms dead hang and that should create that 180 degrees yeah so we'll adjust but until that's ready and then um, we'll just record the bar height and then go from there Right, I'm going to give that one a go. <laughs> see whether I can hit 25. <laughs> yeah. Give us the data and then we can see what, what we'll just... Well, I need to work on. <laughs> so we do that. We do our lower body. Um, at the moment, it's a counter-movement jump just purely because it's uh, obviously lower body power, but it's also quite easy to get through big numbers as well. Yeah. We are thinking going towards our loaded um, jump squats because that's what we do in our academy on a, a sort of three-week cycle with our testing and deloading um, to get our force velocity profiles because we usually program off that, but that's another conversation. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, it's counter-movement jump. Uh, and then we also do all the energy system testing as well. So we because we might have, say, up to 40 testing at the combine it's too hard to do a vo2 max test so we wait until they get into the academy before we give them a vo2 max test but for the academy just for visuals as well we'll give them a three minute glycolytic power test on the on the watt and then we have have been using an alactic uh, 10 second arm crank for alactic upper body power yeah we're probably going to change a lot of these to air dynes because um uh, roman foman from the vegas Institute has created tests for the um, assault bike for VO2, glycolytic, and alactic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, they're pretty killer. So we're going to potentially try them out at this combine, but we haven't been doing that. Yeah, it's, in, it's important to create tests like for, for like air bike because obviously the air bike's been not been around for, for too long. Uh, my mum calls it the penny farthing machine. <laughs> Looks like a big penny farthing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, she she was just like, going, what's that penny farthing machine? Uh, but yeah, the air bike hasn't been around for too long. So obviously in the sports science research, um, there's not many like kind of tests for that. But I think um, we're using it a lot more here because when we were at the university, we didn't have access to it. Uh, now we've got the performance center, got ourselves one. And it is... A very effective uh, tool uh, off feet conditioning. Um, we do 30 second max out sprints with three minutes recovery. Uh, sometimes I can't do that with some of the athletes because of their uh, running mechanics. Um, maybe they start camp heavy um, and this obviously increases the, the likelihood of injury. Um, so we still do the 30 second max out sprints on the, uh, on the curve, the uh, non-motorized treadmill. Uh, but 
definitely using this the the air bike, the Salt Fitness air bike, a lot more now. So yeah, I think I think it's a great thing that you're looking at doing some testing using that piece of kit. Yeah, well, we we were able to run it by a couple of our academy athletes, the VO2 Max on the on the Airdyne and yeah. uh, on the air bike, sorry, and um, maybe eight or nine minutes, and you're done. Yeah. So if if you take the time effectiveness into account, that's that's pretty good for a VO2 and an accurate VO2 at that. So yeah. it's actually really exciting, and and like you said, there's there's less load by taking mm. off the treadmill. I mean. A lot of the time, our VO2 maxes were skewed, not because they weren't fit enough. It's because maybe the legs couldn't keep up with the speed if they were we, a shorter fighter. Or, you know what I mean? We've literally, we've literally just talked about this in the last podcast with Alan, talking about VO2 max testing and the limitations of it, about being able to get to up to that max intensity. So if you can find a way to to reach that max intensity, uh, like like I said about how we use it in our programs, we need to find a way to reach that max intensity to do the 30 second max out sprints or the repeated sprints and do it safely and effectively. That's it. That's how you push the ceiling, right? And yeah. That's the whole point. If you're under training the whole time because you didn't get an accurate result, then is there much point in doing it? There's, there's definitely time and a place for everything, but I think if we can get more effective in our prescriptions because of it, then happy days for strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah, Absolutely. So talking about that testing, what are the uh, and you're taking a lot of data. What are the like? What are the trends that you're seeing from from this data, uh, and how is that influencing your approach to strength conditioning? So, I guess to sort of slide sideways on this one, mm. we we will usually have a moderate, high, low three week cycle mm-hmm. in our training. So just to preface it, we would go return to training for three weeks, just a reintroduction to strength and conditioning and technical training. So they don't spar as much, if at all, during those first three weeks. It's really just coming back into it. Mm. Then they'll go to general prep for three weeks, specific prep three weeks. And if they have a fight that's been um, uh, announced, our fight camps are also six weeks. So we'll have early fight camp for three weeks and late fight camp for for three weeks. So if they don't have a fight, they'll just keep um, cycling through gen prep, specific prep, gen prep, gen prep, specific prep, three, 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 three. So for that, what we tend to do is um, at the end of every three-week cycle, this is discounting fight camp, we will do testing. And so it might just be two working sets basically to get an estimated one RM in whichever movements we're doing at that point in time. So we'll use the Epley formula to get an estimated one RM. We don't actually want them lifting a one RM. We want them doing it sort of close to maximal, but not quite. Otherwise we'll fry them. So they might do three reps. They may have been able to do one or two more, but that's good enough. And we'll give them a, an estimated one RM using the Epley formula for that. And then I can program or prescribe loads based on that for their subsequent three-week cycle or mm-hmm. six-week cycle they're doing. So we'll also do some energy system tests in that, probably once every six weeks rather than every three weeks so we don't fry them. And then it's been really hard, going back to your question, to see specific trends because at any point our fighters might just jump into fight camp or uh, – they they don't have that perfect run through. Plus, we've got so at some points in general prep, we'll have 
more bantamweight fighters, but last time there was more uh, middleweight fighters or maybe there's more females and less males. So uh, we, we can't sort of give absolutes because mm. there's never the group at the same time. So yeah. all, all we can do is track progress of the individual, but usually we do that by comparing it to the data that the UFCPI journals have given across all of the rosters. We have all this data based on, say, maximal glycolytic power on the watt bike test, and it's all relative for each of the weight classes. So, for example, if you were in, I'm just making this up, but if you're in middleweight, you might be expected to have a good uh, relative power of 3.4 watts per kilo. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I've, maybe I've got a middleweight fighter who's in the academy. I'm like, mate, for you to get to the UFC, we want you at world class. We don't want you at good. We want you at world class. Because, you know, maybe you will lose the fight technically, but you're not going to lose it because you're not strong or fit enough. That's what I'm concerned about. That's what I can help you with. So we need you to be considered world-class in your weight class to be at four watts per kilo. Mm. So let's work you on that. Let's test you on that and see where you're at as an individual. And if you fall short of whatever that energy system requirement is, that's going to be your focus moving towards fight camp. So that's how we've sort of done it is we give you very as individualized as possible programs, given there's 30 athletes and we use buckets to do that. And then as they get closer to fight camp, we will try and tailor their energy system development more to improve on the things that aren't at the world-class level that we'd like to see them at. And so that's probably more how we look at it rather than the trends just because the trends are just too funky. Yeah, you've got to work, got to work towards each, each individual, their goals, what the strengths are and what, what they need to work on in terms of their areas for improvement. You know, the, the, there is a difference, I feel personally anyway, uh, having the academy athletes versus having the, the full-time rostered athletes in terms of what we target. Mm-hmm. So in the academy program, I would, I would suggest that they're not in the UFC because they have things to develop. Mm. So as a strength and conditioning coach, I want to make sure that by the time they get to the UFC, those things are developed. And so the way that we would structure our strength and conditioning is we would bucket it based on the force velocity profile plus some other things, but that's the basic way that we do it. Um, So they're loaded squat jumps and then we'll put them into three different uh, what we term phenomenology, which I got from, uh, I think it's Dan John and Ladin Jovanovic. So the phenomenology describes, they used a slightly different, but where we're sort of describing what they are currently. So we'll have an elephant, a tiger, and an antelope. And so an elephant would be someone that's got high force but needs to work on their velocity. Mm-hmm. A tiger is someone who's well-balanced, good force, good velocity, and then an antelope is someone who's got great velocity but maybe needs to work on their maximal force a little bit more. And then I'll bucket it out, bucket those guys out into that as being – it's a generalised program, but we have a weighted much – again, that word weighted, we weight yeah. their program towards their weaknesses so that they can develop that. But by the time they get to the UFC and they're a contracted fighter, well, then it really comes down to maximising – their strengths are and i guess off camp we look at the weaknesses and fight camp we look at their strengths mm-hmm. so two different sort of uh, approaches i guess because of the group that we're working with but that's sort of how we're reasoning what we do 
I like that the uh, the elephant, the tiger, the antelope. We we use it. We use a similar thing to describe. We say like a tank or Ferrari. And then I, don't, I do, but do you know what? I haven't got a middle one, so I don't, don't know what's the difference. <laughs> what's the middle between tank and a Ferrari? Uh, but yeah, but yeah, just get, getting that getting that balance. I like, I like that how you've I said it because I got a question on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was, um, would you focus on their strengths or their areas for improvement? So if you've got a, if you've got an elephant, do you keep working them to be a, a super strong elephant? And if you've got antelope, would you make, carry on making them faster? And how you've kind of described it there is like when you get into a scenario where you're going into a fight in a fight camp, it's really important that they win that fight. Every fight's a world title fight because it takes you up the ladder. And you've got to maximise what they're good at and then out of camp, then work on the areas for improvement. I think, uh, I think you've, you've, you've uh, put that in a really good process. Yeah, thanks, mate. And I mean, the other thing is psychological, right? We were talking about this before we started, oh, yeah. but if you if you work with someone on their weaknesses during fight camp, they're going to feel crap because mm. they're like, man, I can't do this. Like, so if you start focusing on their strengths after they've felt like, man, this is a struggle the whole time, and then you go to their strength during fight camp, they're feeling a million bucks. So that psychological component is huge, especially in the fight game, but most sports as well. So we've got... We've got a very clear model. We've got some some clear like kind of training objectives, but boxing and MMA, chaotic sport, lots of different challenges, and you're doing it in a in a country that you just said about um, that you didn't speak Mandarin that well. Um, so, what are the kind of general challenges in MMA and and within that role at, at the uh, UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai? Um, I'd say it's probably twofold from a strength and conditioning specifically perspective. The training age isn't always that um, experienced. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a, a very wide range, as you can imagine, but they certainly don't have what a lot of us grew up with, whether it was our team sports or um, just college in America or anything like that. There's just their exposure to proper strength and conditioning. It was really, really low. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a positive as well. That that turned into a positive. I think the other thing is in, in China, there's a, been, from our experiences, a very different approach to fights in terms of, uh, you know, how maybe in the UFC there's like, this guy took this fight on two weeks' notice. It's like, yeah, that's pretty standard practice, you know. <laughs> like, mm. It's just like, oh, a fight, yeah, done. Let's, let's do it. And we're like, well, hang on, we had this beautifully laid out process for you guys to follow and and you've said yes to a fight in four weeks you're not ready you've got to do a crazy weight cut for that yeah i can do that all right well let's see what we can do so sometimes it would be it, it's sort of been focused on the money like that's their job and they need to a lot of them are sort of paying for uh, family medical expenses or supporting their family back home so we can't hold them off fights for too long or they can't support their family so it becomes more important than just fighting for a career in a sense of making the ufc it's actually fighting for a career because they're supporting their family and that's that's the main purpose so mm. we'll often get those sort of lateral fights thrown at us and that's been a fairly big challenge because there's a very different culture around it yeah trying change some of the cultural differences 
um, or at least integrate with those cultural differences because, you know, some of the things that uh, Chinese MMA and, and just Chinese culture does in general is far superior to what we do in Western society and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So it's about finding and adapting to, to both sides and so that we actually get the best picture out of all of it rather than just saying, hey, we're right and do it our way. Like, actually, that's, that's pretty cool as well. Let's see if we can integrate that. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. What about um, language barrier? Has that been a problem? Yeah. So, I mean, the language barrier is a really good and a it's, it's a difficult thing. But uh, it, it what it did teach me was how much we talk as, as coaches and how much we don't need to talk as coaches. So, it was really about finding out the the cues that meant something to the athlete and learning that in Mandarin and then using that as my coaching cue. Mm. I found that to be really, really helpful. It also obviously created a massive amount of buy-in because um, in China, if you even say a couple of words, they think your Chinese is amazing. They're so kind like that um, when you know it's terrible. But they, they, they really just appreciated you trying to learn the language. So um, finding out the important words, learning them, created buy-in, but then you've got to also find out other ways to connect with your athletes and that's where the people skills come in. It could be giving your athlete a high five, fist bump, a big hug or just a smile on your face yeah. to show that energy and that care that you have for them. You don't have to speak the language all the time. Where it was an issue was getting into the the, the real details of how they were feeling. You know, you could ask, you know, how, how's your body feeling and they would say, yeah, good coach or whatever it is in, in Chinese. But further than that, you know, you really had to learn the mm-hmm. language to get into the details. And so that, that was frustrating for me because you end up working so much that the, the, the Chinese lessons kind of fall by the wayside, but you actually really need that for your job as well. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it was a tough balancing act to, to keep learning, but also to you just got to work in the, at the end of the day. That's probably the priority, right? So yeah. It, yeah. It's definitely was the key coming back to Australia. I realised how much coaches talk when they probably don't need to. Yeah, you know, you know what? Um, we've had an athlete in here who's from Kazakhstan, uh, so his uh, language is Russian. Uh, he couldn't couldn't hardly speak any English, uh, if if not any, and it was quite refreshing that you didn't have to fill the silences between sets and how we was kind of like communicating about his like technique and everything just made it really, really simple and it was really effective as well. So uh, I actually, actually really enjoyed like speak, like obviously like sometimes like you say about the, the detail stuff, like talking about recovery, talking about like kind of managing his training and everything like that, that become a bit of a problem. So like that's just one athlete. So, I take my hat off to you, uh, having to manage uh, <laughs> over thirty athletes in 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 that way. Uh, but yeah, try and find different ways to to communicate and and again refining your coaching uh, it's, it was quite refreshing. That's that's fantastic. Um, going on to some of your uh, strength conditioning, so saying about like the testing data, saying about how you work towards that individual. But most coaches have a set set of exercises or kind of training methods that they kind of tend to steer towards? What are your key training methods? If you could like kind of pick out handful exercises, like maybe five or something. 
Yeah, that's a tough one because I'll always sort of go back to the, the the systems and how those methods fit into that. You know, mm-hmm. what, what what is what am I trying to get out of the training? What's the philosophy and the physiology that I'm trying to get out of my training? And then what's the best exercise to suit that? Mm-hmm. So it's certainly less um, exercise specific and more systematic approaches about what I can do to get the most uh, adaptation. And, and so mm-hmm. what, what suits the best? For example, if I'm looking at lower body pulling strength is a, a sumo deadlift, a trap bar deadlift, or a conventional deadlift, the best exercise. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're all pretty good, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, well, what is it for that athlete? Yeah. That person um, has had a little bit of lumbar issues in the past, so maybe a trap bar deadlift is a better mm-hmm. option. Still a deadlift option. So that's probably more where, how I look at it and even – particularly with, say, I'll be going, I just need upper body pushing power today. Today's a power day. We need upper body pushing. Um, I'd like them to go overhead. Is there an athlete that can't do that? What's an alternative for that athlete? If they can go overhead, how am I progressing it through all those phases that I mentioned before? When I start at return to training, What's that then going to look like by the time they get to late fight camp and what are their exercise progressions along those three cycles? And that's how I look at it. So for three weeks, they might do a seated um, dumbbell Z press mm-hmm. because they're always kyphotic. I want to get them in good movement capacity, good posture, still getting that overhead press um, hypertrophy because it's about the only time we can sort of look at increasing muscle mass because we've got to mitigate that a lot of the time mm-hmm. with weight fast sport. But that's going to then lead on to, say, power day when they go to gen prep and we might look at a very simple technique uh, of a barbell push press. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to start getting that dip and drive, which associates well with the counter-movement jump, but now we're also including the upper body, so we get that overhead press. And then progressing that, we might look at, say, a push jerk. So now we've got to get that yielding effect when they catch it as well, mm. dropping under the bar a little bit more. And then maybe we start looking at specific stances. So by early fight camp, we're now moving into split jerks mm. and getting the ability of that lead leg to eccentrically take on that force so that they can generate more power through their punches and not only just an overhead sort of movement for upper body power, but now we're starting to incorporate that eccentric strength as well in that lead leg, which is shown to improve punching power. So then we might think of, are we going to get a ballistic movement? So now we compare that with a medicine ball or previously to that, maybe we were looking antagonistically. So we're getting looking at that ABC mechanism the action breaking clamping mechanism that we can use in that muscle contraction so that we can make sure that we have the ability to leave deceleration to the last minute in when they're throwing a strike, for example. That's what mm-hmm. we were trying to improve on, that ability to uh, slow, uh, speed up that eccentric muscle mm-hmm. contraction. So in off camp, we might focus on that. And then fight camp, now it's just all go, go, go. We want to potentiate it. We'll go from a split jerk to a med ball throw. Same same movement, trying to really generate through that um, upper body pushing, striking yeah. sort of movement patterns. So, so, so to mitigate that eccentric portion, um, what methods would you use to, to do that? Yep. So that's part of the antagonistic supersets as well. So we mm. might look at, say, a 
uh, early style, we might go from a push press to um, like an incline, uh, you know, the jammer arms, and we'll do like high volume power training of the bros. Oh, right, yeah. Jammer row. Mm-hmm. And so we'll band them up and we'll make sure that we just work like high volume power training on those for mm-hmm. clusters of 555 or 666, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So we're just going immediately to them and then we'll put them on an accessory exercise. So it's like an uh, uh, an active rest. So yeah. maybe it's neck or a remedial drill or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ways that we do it. We also, with our jumping, we'll sort of look at um, eccentric overspeed stuff. So just the, the classic holding on to the bands up on your toes, making it pull you down and then releasing the bands so that you jump up concentrically with speed. Yeah making you speed up on the eccentric. We'll also do like little um, oscillations with those as well before having the release. Um, we do quite a bit of oscillation-based work, whether it's with core-based training, so mm. band chops for clusters, oscillation clusters or things like that, even if it's high-volume training, mm. uh, high-volume power training, trap bars and bands, dun, 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 have mm. a rest, same again. That yeah. one-off switch basically is what we're sort of looking for over time, cool. yeah. But we need the capacity first, right? So, And what does fight week look like? Do you totally back off or do you do some sort of tapers with them? Yep. So fight week for us at the moment, we'll, they'll usually have a Monday and Tuesday S&C with us and then they'll fly out on the Wednesday to wherever they're fighting. So the Monday session will be sort of broken up. We'll, we'll do like, I guess, activation and ballistic-based work, so whether it's mini hurdles, med ball throws, um, some mini band stuff because they're used to it in their warm-ups. We'll yeah. also do uh, 10-5 testing on the force plates because usually they're, they're primed and they're, they're not too fatigued, so they'll get a really good result and they can actually show us how they've progressed over time because we'll yeah. tend to do that every three weeks as well. What kind of, what kind of RSI are you getting from, from that, may I ask? In fight camp, in late fight camp, by the time they get to that point, a lot of our athletes are looking at anywhere between 3.2 and 3.5. So they're pretty good. Pretty good. The best we had was 3.7. So they're they're super, super springy by that point. And, um, you know, there's some of the sort of data we've collected. Some of them had started at 2.8. And then over the course of six weeks, you know, they're starting to learn the mechanics of it, obviously, but then – a lot of that fitness fatigue starts crossing over and we start making them feel a bit better and there's less fatigue involved. And then, you know, if they if they started off six weeks ago at 2.8 and they're in late fight camp at 3.4 and we can show them where that sits in the, in regards to them and the UFC and their weight class, they're, they're stoked, right? So mentally, yeah. again, we're playing into that game of going, man, you're ready. You're ready to go. Yeah. You're firing at all cylinders. Let's, let's do this. Yeah, I've just had that with... Uh... One of our athletes is fighting at the weekend. Um, he did a 10 by 5, um, 10 5 pogo test um, and he hit 3.2. And I think he was like, um, when he first started with, with us, was about 2.8. So, so I've seen a bit, big, big improvement there and going into fight and, and everything that's like kind of springy i put that into the into the fight week get the feet working um then going into some banded shadow boxing stuff like that making him feel good and he, he sat down and he just went i love this <laughs> he just he just went i love i love i love all, i love all this so like 
like you say, making making them feel good is 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 a key factor, and go, going into the fight, mate. You know, you just got to imagine yourself in their shoes, right? Yeah, it's hard enough going into to battle, but if everything if you've prepared in every way possible, and you know that that's not the issue, it's just who's better on the day, then yeah. that certainly would sell your mind. Cool. So we're just going to round off with, with a couple more questions. Um, so you're leaving um, the Performance Institute in, in Shanghai. What are the main successes that you, you kind of like reflect on? Like you're leaving that place and you're like, right, this is, this is what I've achieved there. I, I would like to hope that I've created a, a systematic approach to strength and conditioning there. So no matter who comes in the door, no matter who the coach is, they're able to follow that system. It's a simple system, but it's an effective system. So that's definitely something for me that I'm proud of. Um, it, it's certainly something that coming from that clean slate we spoke about before to, to now having a, a really in-depth system that integrates all the different departments within the PI is, is awesome, mate. And, and I think particularly having the other departments feel comfortable knowing that they can share their opinions mm. and that it will actually be listened to is, is really important for me as well because I want that. I don't know as much about MMAs our technical coaches. I don't know as much about physiotherapy as our physiotherapists. I don't know as much about mm. nutrition as our dietitian. So tell me, what, what, what are your thoughts, right? Like what, mm. what's your input here so that yeah. I can make this program better? Fantastic. Yeah, you've, you've done a – sounds like you've done a brilliant job. It's been uh, brilliant to talk to you about that. Um, what are your, like, kind of goals for the future then? Obviously, moving over to Vegas – Going to the uh, performance institute uh, in in Las Vegas. What uh, what are you looking forward to in in that role, and what are your goals? I think um, the continuation of integration between departments is always paramount for me. No matter where I go, and no matter what's happening at the moment, I just I actually enjoy dealing with the other departments because of the knowledge I gain from them. Yeah. So that's something I'm excited about is I'll be getting new information from them and, mm. and new insights from them, which will only help me become better as a practitioner as well. Um, currently, the team in Shanghai, uh, particularly with the physiotherapy side of things, Tim Roberts and I are uh, getting uh, some really good information on neck work so we're developing like uh we've developed like a, a neck test which then can be utilized in strength and conditioning prescriptions mm -hmm. and, and that is super exciting because we're starting to use the physiotherapist th physiotherapy testing as part of our buckets within remedial-based prescriptions in strength and conditioning and we're doing that for big groups mm -hmm. and so i'm really looking forward to um, that continuing in Shanghai and then also getting influenced by um, Heather Linden and her team in Vegas about their thoughts on how it is because it's obviously a very different setup over there. They mm. might have a more transient population where people come in for just two weeks, fight camp, and that's it. So you can't really uh, affect that as much as you could in Shanghai, but there are certainly athletes who live there full-time and maybe that's how we go about it. I don't know. I'm mm. looking forward to their input for sure because um, – the team over there are awesome. They're, they're 
full of brain power and uh, obviously most people that listen to you guys know Duncan French as well. So he's a big influence on me and I look forward to picking his brain and seeing what we can come up with. Yeah, fantastic. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you. It's, uh, it sounds like a, an amazing role. Like I said, you, you'll have to be, you've got to be proud of yourself of, of what you've achieved in, in Shanghai and, and take that into, uh, into this new role. But Gav, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I could have, uh, we could add this for three hours. I think if we just like had a two way conversation about strength conditioning, I'm sorry that I interrupted at some points <laughs> and give me two pens. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's, right, it's we'll been great. Do it off a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see see how see how you get on first first uh, six months to a year uh, UFC Performance Institute in in Vegas, um, and we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll have a catch up and and see what you uh, you you might have changed all your coaching philosophies <laughs> within within that time made 180 degree turns. But yeah, Gav, really appreciate you taking time uh, on the Boxing Science Podcast, and uh, all the best in the future. And you too, Danny. Thank you very much, mate. I love what you guys are doing out there. It's um, it's really exciting to watch and and a, and a great great influence on the combat sports world as well, mate. So so what well to you guys as well. Cheers, Gav. Much appreciated. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this episode of the Boxing Science Podcast. I want to give a massive thank you to Gav Pratt for spending his time and sharing his uh, knowledge, his expertise, and his experience of in strength conditioning and in particular around his role at the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. Um, he's got to be super proud of, of what he's achieved so far, building something from scratch and leaving something that's going to have a massive impact on MMA in China. And I'm very excited to see what he achieves at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas. I'm very keen to see how he gets on. Um, big thank you to all you guys uh, watching and listening if you're on the youtube channel please hit the like and subscribe button and leave a comment below let us know how you find the podcast and also if you're on apple or spotify or whatever you listen to your podcasts to please hit the subscribe button and give us a rating and give us some feedback because this helps elevate the growth of the boxing size podcast allows us to do uh, more of these kind of episodes and attract uh, fantastic coaches like Gav. Um, before I go, big thank you to our partners and sponsors of the podcast, uh, Saga Fitness. Saga Fitness is a specialist in BFR training and their smart wearable technology, the cuffs are fantastic. We've been using them in the gym quite a lot recently for upper body strength and lower body strength. And they're very safe, very simple and easy and effective to use. So go and check out uh, the link in the description for more information about how you can get your hands on the bit uh, on the saga fitness bfr cuffs and if you're wanting to get your hands on these cuffs please use the boxing science discount you can save yourself 10 percent by using the code boxing science okay guys thank you very much for watching or listening to the podcast I hopefully see you on the next episode